Hello, my name is Anthea Roberts. I'm an academic at the Australian National University and today I'm going to be talking to you about a book I published last year in 2017 called Is International Law International? Now this is a book that actually really came from my experiences as an international lawyer uh, studying in multiple states, uh, working in multiple states and then teaching in multiple states. And what I came to realise as I moved around is that I had always assumed that international law was universal. I was very familiar with the concept of comparative domestic law and that's because with tort law or with contract law we often assume that laws will be similar or different in different countries and so we have an idea of comparing them to see what's the same and what's different. But when it comes to international law, which is obviously the international law between states, there's an assumption that this body of law is universal. And so I'd always assumed it was international as its name suggested. But as I started to move around, particularly between Australia, the US and the UK, I started to notice some very different communities of international lawyers in these three different states, with different understandings of international law and different approaches. And it made me wonder how international law, how international it actually was. And in asking that question, I also began to realise that I was asking that question moving between three Western English-speaking common law states, which made me start to wonder how different might international law look if I was coming from a very different tradition, uh, for example, from China or from Russia. And so instead of asking the usual question that we ask, which is, is international law law? In this project, I started to ask the question, is international law international? Now, in asking this question, I think I ended up finding that my analysis really revolved around three different themes. The first theme is the idea of difference, that there might be different communities of international lawyers and different approaches to international law. The second was the idea of dominance, that there are some national or regional approaches to international law that have become dominant in terms of how we understand international law. And the final theme is that of disruption, which is I think that we're now entering into a new era where geopolitics is changing and our need to understand different approaches to international law has significantly increased. And so it's these three themes of difference, dominance and disruption that are what I organise my book around and are what I'm going to talk to you about today. Now the best analogy I can give for my approach to this subject is an analogy from language. In a way, international law tries to be Esperanto. It tries to be the universal language that exists between all sorts of other languages that people can connect into and encourages communication and peace between people. In fact, Esperanto was suggested as the language um, of the UN or its predecessor, I think, actually. Um, and the idea was that we could all buy into this language equally. But in reality, what we actually find with languages is Esperanto is not the dominant language. Instead, we find two realities. The first is a reality of multilingualism. And that's because what we end up having around the world are different communities of different language speakers. And there is a lot more communication going on within a particular language community than between language communities. We don't always know if we're saying the same thing just in different languages or whether we might actually be saying different things in different languages. So that's what we have on the one hand. We have multilingualism, which is much like my concept of difference. But on the other hand, we also have English as the lingua franca, which is because not all languages are equal on the international stage. Uh, some have been privileged, and in particular, English has become sort of defined as synonymous with the sort of global standard for things that are international, whether it's international business, international meetings, international education. And that's equivalent to the idea I have of dominance, 
where certain national or regional approaches really become the international approach. And so this same kind of tension we see between multilingualism on the one hand and English as the lingua franca on the other is much like the tension I think we see in international law between patterns of difference and patterns of dominance. Now, how was I going to study this? Well, I chose not to start with international law in and of itself. Instead, I think of international law as something which is a, a product of particular communities. And what I wanted to study were the different communities of international lawyers and the different ways they were understanding and approaching international law. Now, it's very, very hard to study um, government lawyers. It's very hard to get access to them and to, to, to find out kind of what their backgrounds are, how they're approaching international law. But it turns out it's much easier to find out information about academics. And so I started this project by looking at different communities of academic international lawyers in different states and also looked at the product that they often use to teach international law, which are international law textbooks and casebooks. Now I picked academics and textbooks for a number of different reasons. One is that academics and, and the views of the most highly qualified publicists are actually a source in international law, so they have a particular weighting within our field. Another is that they uh, often have very strong connections to practice. So for example, the most common job before being a judge on many of the international courts is to have been an academic. They also are very important in teaching understandings of international law to the next generation. And textbooks are very important for that as well. Textbooks are also cited in international judgments. They're cited by um, legal advisors. And so I wanted to get a sense of who are these academics, what are their influences and approaches, and what are they teaching as international law to our next generation. So that, they're the group of international lawyers I focused on. And in many ways, you'll end up finding that the characteristics of the academics are quite similar, I think, to the characteristics of other international lawyers from those states. But not always. There are exceptions, so you need to be wary about that. But then which states should I study? Well, you really ideally want to study many, many states. Uh, you'd want to go horizontally out to study many states and you want to go vertically down to give a lot of detail to in a particular state. But that would be too large a project for, for a single book. And so I decided to focus back in and look at the five permanent members of the Security Council. And one reason I looked at the five permanent members of the Security Council, other than the fact that they've had a privileged status in international law, so it's particularly interesting to look at their practice, is that they are similar and different on a lot of interesting measures. So we have Western and non-Western, we have English-speaking, non-English-speaking, um, we have um, democratic and non-democratic, we have um, Anglophone, Francophone, we have all sorts of interesting divides between this particular group, which makes it interesting to look at what's similar and different between them. But I think it's also a particularly interesting group to look at at the moment because at least since the last year or so, 2016, 2017, and possibly back to around 2014, there's also been a real understanding that some of the traditional geopolitics that we saw in previous generations might be back and that we're seeing more strategic competition between some of the states that are now on the Security Council and in the permanent member spots. So I thought it would be interesting to look at these different communities of international lawyers and compare their approaches. But with any selection of states, when you're selecting five states out of almost 200 states, you're going to have blind spots. And so, for example, this project looks more at great powers than it does at uh, periphery states. So we don't have as many indications of the core periphery dynamics, which have been central, for example, to third world approaches to international law. We also have blind spots that uh, of the permanent members, there are no permanent 
permanent members in Africa, uh, in the Middle East, none in Latin America. So this is by no means a comprehensive study. But it, it starts a dialogue about whether international law is international. And I really encourage people to look both at the practice of other states, look at things like core periphery dynamics, but also look in more detail at particular states. Because even though I'm trying to give you a snapshot of these particular states, obviously there are differences within them as well as between them. So with that as the background, what is it that I want to pre present to you today? Well, what I've decided to do is focus on three different themes. The first is to look at what I'm calling the Divisible College of International Lawyers, which reflects my ideas about some of the difference patterns that we see. The second is to present to you some of my material about the textbooks, where we see both patterns of difference but also patterns of dominance. And finally, I want to talk to you a little bit about this new competitive world order that I think we're entering, which focuses on my ideas of disruption. So let's start with part one. Now, international lawyers love the idea of the Invisible College of International Lawyers. Uh, according to Oscar Schachter, we are part of an invisible college of international lawyers who are dispersed throughout the world, yet engaged in a continuous process of communication and collaboration. And this is an image that we love to have of ourselves because we tend to like to think of ourselves as very cosmopolitan. But when I started to look around at the different communities of international lawyers, instead of seeing an invisible college of international lawyers, once I rendered it visible, I started to see actually what I'm thinking of as the divisible college of international lawyers, which are quite different groupings of international lawyers, some of which, some, some groups stay quite national, others become international, but often with links to other lawyers that are like themselves, not necessarily to links to other lawyers from all sorts of different states. How do I want to show this? Well, the first way I started to look at this is to look at influencing factors, uh, both socialization factors and incentive factors, about things like educational profiles and publication placements. And what I started to find is that the international lawyers uh, at the top schools in these different states had very, very different patterns about where they had studied and where they published. And these made a difference for the kind of community that they were used to engaging with. So for example, you had some states, uh, Russia was a good example of this, where I think out of the elite lawyers at the, uh, sorry, the, the international lawyers at the elite um, law schools in Russia, roughly 98% had done their first law degree in Russia, their second law degree in Russia, and their third law degree in Russia, and published about 98% of their international law materials that we could find in Russian, in the Russian language and in Russian journals or Russian materials. And one of the results of that is they ended up having quite a self-contained Russian international law community and Russian international law dialogue. You go across into certain other states and you see a very, very different pattern. So for example, in the United States, we, we see that most of the international lawyers here, though not all, uh, have usually only done one law degree because of the structure of the degrees. They do that law degree in America. Many of them then go and work for um, US judges, work for the US State Department, and then work in US law schools. So they are quite national as well, but not nearly as national, I think, as their Russian colleagues. But quite different, for example, to the international lawyers in the United Kingdom. So in the United Kingdom, at the elite schools, what I found is about 70%, I think was the number, of the international lawyers had not only done uh, law degrees in more than one state, but most of them had actually done 
their first law degree in a state other than the United Kingdom. And at least at this stage, your first law degree is often a very good proxy for your nationality. And so what we find is that a lot of the international lawyers in the UK Academy not only have diverse educational experiences, but are actually often not UK nationals or were not originally UK nationals, came from many other places. And that means a lot of different things, um, including that they don't tend to be as focused on to British approaches to international law, British foreign relations, and we'll talk about that in a second. But they also have incentives not to publish necessarily in just British journals, but to publish in international peer review journals, so American Journal of International Law, European Journal of International Law. And this actually means that they often engage in sort of a transnational community. Still, as I'll say later, probably a very Western community, often a very English-speaking community, but it's not really a national community. Now, when you start to see these differences about education and also publication, you start to realise that this actually affects debates we have about international law. So an example I'll give you of that is Crimea. So when you had Russia either annexing or taking back Crimea, depending on the way you look at it, um, what you ended up finding was that there were very different debates going on. So there was largely a Russian debate going on in Russian by Russian authors um, about, about this situation. And you also had a Western debate going on by Western authors, usually in, in the English language. And one of the interesting things about these debates was not only were their factual assumptions different and their, their application of the law different, but there was almost no communication between these two groups of international lawyers. They were really taking part in debates in relative silos from each other. And they were debates in relative silos that really spoke at, at cross-purposes in terms of understanding what was going on. You could even see that from the titles of the articles. So the, the Russian journals would often talk about the reunification of Crimea with Russia, whereas the Western articles were usually about uh, Russia's illegal use of force and annexation of Crimea. So just these very different understandings of what was happening and what the relevant legal principles were, whether it was the use of force or self-determination. But what I started to also see when I was doing this was that these different communities of international lawyers, I was largely focused on, on these few core states, but I started to realize that many of these core states often pushed their ideas down to other states that were in their own periphery. And so here I started to become much more attentive more generally, not just to the educational profiles of the professors, but also the students that they were teaching. And so one of the things I'll show you here are two sets of slides about student movements, which I think are quite interesting for thinking about who it is these teachers teach. What you see with student movements, which is people who cross borders in order to study law, is that they, they follow two different asymmetries. The first is students tend to move, and you can see this, they move from periphery towards core, from non-Western towards Western, and from non-English speaking towards English speaking. That's the movement of students. But interestingly, ideas and materials and sources move back out with those students when they often return home. And so what we tend to find is that we have a flow in of students and a flow out of ideas and materials. So those two asymmetries become really important for understanding how international law ideas from places like the US and UK or from places like France and Russia end up diffusing to their own cores and peripheries. And you can see this actually very clearly, these, these sort of uh, dynamics, when you look at a state like Australia, which we'll do in, uh, in this slide now. Because Australia is a semi-periphery state, so we're neither totally core nor totally peripheral. And so you can actually see this dynamic by looking at where do um, foreign students come from in order to study Australia? Well, Australia is a massive hub of education, particularly in Asia, so we take in students from Asia. 
But where do Australians go to to study? They go to the US and UK primarily. So they go to core Western speaking, sorry, Western English speaking states. And what you end up finding is if you look in the, the materials for international law or articles by Australians or um, you know, um, case books for comparative constitutional law, largely the world you see is the world of where your students went rather than where your students have come from. Because I think there's something so much more powerful in people's makeup uh, about the sources and materials they get where they go to be a student rather than where their students come from. But there isn't just one core periphery relationship that's happening here. There are multiple cores and peripheries based on language and legal history. And so we can see that from the next slide um, where I'm giving you a comparison between student flows of where students flow from Nigeria and Mauritania. Nigeria, Anglophone, where do they go? They go to the UK and to the US. Mauritania, Francophone, where do they go? They go strongly to France. And so we start to see that there's an Anglophone core a francophone core, a russophone core, and these are not all at the same heights. The anglophone core I think is higher than the francophone, which is higher than the russophone in terms of how many students they have. But you start to see these core periphery dynamics and you start to see the diffusion of international law from these cores out to their peripheries. So that gives you some sense about the different educational backgrounds and the different publishing incentives that might create these different communities of international lawyers. But there are also different connections to practice and also different incentives. So what, what could be some examples of this and how might they affect approaches to international law? Well, I mentioned one already, which is the profile of the US international lawyers. So US international lawyers had typically not only studied international law only in America, but they often had very nationalizing work experience. So many of them at the elite schools had done two clerkships, both in the US, one for a domestic district court and one for the Supreme Court. They then often went and worked for the US government, particularly the US State Department. Um, and these sort of experiences often affected, I think, both the topics that they chose to focus on and the way in which they approached those topics. So we see, for example, in, in the US approaches to international law, a very strong emphasis on US foreign relations law. How does international law come into the US legal system? How is it applied by US courts? and much less focus often on international courts and tribunals or some of the transnational issues that, that we'll talk about later. That was very, very different to, for example, the UK and French international lawyers. Now, the UK and French international lawyers uh, typically did not work for domestic judges in their particular state. They also typically did not cycle in and out of working for government because that's just not as common in these countries generally, including for international lawyers. And particularly in the UK case, if many of the international lawyers actually weren't UK citizens, they couldn't go and work for the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office in any event. And so the UK and French international lawyers were often much less connected to their state in these sort of domesticated ways in terms of work experience, but by contrast were incredibly connected to, for example, international courts and tribunals. And so many of the high profile UK and French international lawyers uh, work as counsel, as advocate, also as arbitrator, as judges, and you see a much stronger kind of linking of these communities of international lawyers to transnational practice in international courts and tribunals than with the U US international lawyers. And as we'll see later, I think that actually ends up affecting what subjects they tend to focus on and what they tend to teach to their students. But it's not just about the practice and the connections you have to practice, which can differ for international lawyers from different states, but it's also about other incentives. So one of the examples I'll give you of this is uh, Chinese funding in international law. So the Chinese government actually um, has 
uh, recommended topics of research each year that it gives out to its academics and then it funds um, proposals based on these recommended topics of research. So that means in international law every year the, the uh, Chinese government actually gives out recommended topics of research in international law and funds particular research projects. So I started to code what were the topics that China was recommending its um, scholars study and what specific proposals did they actually end up um, did they actually end up funding? And what I found from when I did this was that there were very, very clear patterns. So, uh, and we'll, I'll put up a slide for this now. What you saw is, first of all, a lot of focus on international economic law, and that's also partly in China. They don't just have a block concept of international law. International law is actually divided into three different subjects in their curriculum. They have public international law, international economic law, and private international law. So a very, very strong focus on international economic law. At least after 2009, we also see a lot of funding going towards law of the sea, um, which I think is related to the South China Sea disputes. And we also have funding going to international environmental law. But in many of the core things that you actually saw the US international lawyers focus on, so for example, international law in domestic courts, international criminal law, international human rights law, foreign relations law, laws of war, huge topics within the US academy, you saw much less focus on in terms of funding by the Chinese government. And so we ended up sort of creating incentives for very different types of international lawyers in these two states in ways that actually don't intersect very well. So for example, you can't find many uh, law of the sea academics at, at top universities in the United States. Um, many of the ones that we had were really from a generation ago and are now at the point where they are retiring or have retired and in some cases have died. And that for the last generation there has not been as strong a uptake of uh, law of the sea experts within the US Academy, which is going to be very different to what we see some of the specialties coming out of China. So we start to see not only different practice, but different incentives to create different groups of international lawyers that focus on different issues, engage in different ways, and, and I think also have different approaches. So now let me turn to the second part of my talk, which is to look at how this plays out in the textbooks of international law. Now I started to do this on the textbooks of international law because when I first started teaching I'd been teaching at the London School of Economics in the United Kingdom and I set a UK international law textbook. And then I was asked to go and teach uh, for a year at Harvard Law School and I thought look you know it's all international law it's all going to be the same but US students are more used to US cases and materials books so I thought look I'll set one of the US ones because even though it's the same they'll be more used to that cases and material based method. And suddenly, having set this particular textbook, I suddenly realized that there were an awful lot more domestic cases than I had really expected there would be. And in many cases, I ended up standing in front of the room teaching US Supreme Court cases that I had not previously read. Um, and it struck me as very interesting, partly because I not only didn't think that the US Supreme Court was the oracle in terms of telling me what international law was. In many cases, I actually thought the US Supreme Court wasn't very good at actually being a student of international law. I thought many of the approaches they were taking weren't what I understood international law to be at all, let alone to be the authority on what international law was. So one of the things I started to look at in these textbooks was whether this impression that, that the US casebooks were actually much more domestic, whether it was actually true or whether it was just my impression. Now there are a lot of different ways you can try and um, pass this out and I, I use a number in the book but I'm just going to show you one here which is I started to look at 
out of all of the cases that are cited in these international law textbooks, and I, I took the top three or five international law textbooks from these different states, I started to say, well, look, kind of how nationalised are these textbooks? So I started looking at how many cases come from the state's own domestic courts, from international courts and tribunals, and from foreign courts. And as you'll see from this slide that we're doing, um, the US was a complete outlier, that the majority of the cases in the US textbooks on international law were actually by US domestic courts. And this was completely different to what I found in any of the other textbook, any of the other countries I looked at. So my impression that it was quite domesticated turned out to actually be quite accurate, I think. Now that compares very much to, for example, what we see in this chart of China, where out of the five textbooks that I studied in China, there was not a single domestic Chinese case. And so whereas the this sort of implicit messaging from the US international law textbooks was really like uh, international law is what we do, the Chinese textbooks, the implicit messaging was almost a bit more like international law is what other people do or what is done at a distance. And it also made me realize um, that some of the metrics that I just took for granted in terms of trying to understand international law like domestic case law, which seems so obvious to me as a Western common law lawyer, actually if I used that as my metric to understand international law, I tended to see certain states a lot, but I rendered other states invisible. And, and China was an example of a state that I rendered invisible. And that's because China has a lot of practice with respect to international law, but not really through its domestic courts. And so once you accept that as a metric, which we in our system are trained to do, you, you suddenly don't see uh, significant numbers of states, and I think states that we need to have a better understanding of in the next generation. You'll also see in the, the third graphic, after the US and China, you'll see France. And there what you see is in their textbooks, they have a lot of international cases, a majority, unlike the, um, unlike the US ones. They also have a lot of domestic ones, unlike the Chinese one, but very, very few foreign ones. And so I said the kind of implicit messaging of these textbooks is international law, it's basically us and the ICJ, and nothing else really matters so much. Now you can actually see these patterns play out in quite significant ways about what it is we're teaching international law to be. And so here I'm going to show you two different word clouds which basically take the cases that are used in this US and UK textbook and um, do them by how many, time, how many pages that they're cited on. And what you see in the first graphic, which we'll do now, this is from one of the US international law casebooks, probably the most nationalised ones of the US ones. And if you look at these cases, what you find is almost all of the big cases that are referred to are by US domestic courts. And the one major exception is Nicaragua and the US, where the US obviously um, was taken before the International Court of Justice, but refused to submit to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. Now interestingly, one of the things that you find in um, the US approach is because of all the socialising and education incentives and um, practices, I think you often find many of the US international lawyers have a very strong focus on foreign relations law. And that's what you see in this textbook. And the Nicaragua and US case, interestingly, is the intersection of both the international courts and tribunals and the US foreign relations law approach. You go on to the next graphic, and this is one from one of the UK textbooks. And what you find here is it actually has the same biggest case, Nicaragua and the US, which is again at that intersection. But almost every other big case you can see here is by an international court and tribunal. 
And you actually get a very different impression of the importance of international courts and tribunals if you study this sort of a textbook. Because here you become used to international courts and tribunals as being the oracle of international law, the bread and butter of international law. And suddenly the Nicaragua and US case looks like an outlier where the US may have done the wrong thing. Instead of it being international courts aren't that important, they're not what you really look to. And in any event, when the US was taken before it, they didn't abide by it anyway, so it shows that international law is not really law. So you get quite different impressions. In terms of the focus on domestic law, you can see in this second graphic, you can see the case Pinochet, which is the biggest domestic law case there. And after that, you can maybe just make out Jones uh, versus Saudi Arabia. And after that, you almost can't see British cases. And that's because in the US, there's a very strong focus on US foreign relations law as being the equivalent of international law, but not so much in the UK. And when you think about it, that kind of makes sense because most of the UK international lawyers are not British nationals. They did not study law, their undergraduate law degree in the UK. They probably did not study UK public law. They do not go and work for the UK government as government lawyers. They do not work for UK judges. Their understanding of international law is a much more transnational, international courts and tribunals, international organisations understanding of international law than a UK uh, foreign relations law understanding of international law. So I think some quite different uh, different approaches on the substance and also on the kind of understanding of where it is you look for international law. But I should note here, you shouldn't take my comments to mean that I'm critical to say that we shouldn't have any domestic focus or it should all be international focus. That's definitely not my point. Um, when I first looked at the US materials, I, I definitely was struck by what I thought was an overfocus on the domestic compared to the international. But when I looked around the world, I also saw uh, in some cases what I thought was an underfocus on the domestic. And so here these core periphery relationships actually make quite a difference. So to give you an example, in India, there are no Indian international law textbooks that are used at the top schools. Instead, the textbooks that they use are UK international law textbooks. And one of the things is if you use UK international law textbooks to teach you international law in India, they have almost no material on Indian approaches to international law. Even though India is a very important rising power and India's got an active Supreme Court with distinct approaches to international law, India's got distinct approaches on a number of questions to the UK. But if you're going to be teaching from an imported um, foreign international law textbook, obviously it's not going to focus very much on your own domestic approaches. And I think that means that you often fail to get a contextualised understanding of how international law is brought home to your state. And one way I started to see this difference is if you go across and look in for South Africa, for example, one of the main international law textbooks they use is also British, but the other main one they use is actually by a South African author. And the one by the South African author does engage with a lot more South African cases. So you do get this balance of not only international law as it's done out there and international law as it's done by others, but international law as it's brought home to your country. And so I think we need some sort of a balance between the domestic, the international and the foreign. And we need to triangulate between those if we're going to get a good understanding of what international law is like. But I wasn't just focused on issues of difference between the textbooks in these states. I also wanted to focus on the issue of dominance. And so one of the questions I asked myself, for example, is out of all the domestic cases that were cited, what percentage came from Western states? And so I wanted to get sort of a, an idea of the geographic distribution of these cases. So one of the graphics we're just going to show now is of the UN geopolitical regional groups. And there are five of them, and one of them is, is WIOG, Western Europe and Other, which is yellow. 
So I wanted to say out of all of the case law, domestic case law that's cited in these textbooks, what percentage came from the WIOG states? And as you'll see from this graphic, uh, I would say an extraordinarily high percentage. So this pie chart we have here from France, 99.6% of the domestic cases were from WIOG states, 99% uh, from the US textbooks, 96% from the UK textbooks. And so we saw a really strong focus once we looked at the, this sort of metric of materials, an incredibly strong focus to the Western states. But it wasn't all Western states equally. What we ended up finding when we broke it down was that most of these, when they look at least at foreign cases, they look primarily to just two Western states, the US and the UK. And that was, that was consistent across a whole range of different states, this pattern. And so in terms of dominance, what we started to see being counted as the international and the practice that you looked at was Western in general and Anglo-American in particular. And my own feeling is that's not just in the textbooks, that we see that also in the, the sources that are often cited by international courts. We see it more generally, for example, in choice of law. This idea that what becomes the international lingua franca is often Western in general, but Anglo-American in particular. And a really good example of this, actually, I, I found in uh, China's approach to the Jessup mood. So China's only recently started um, having um, uh, students participate in the Jessup mood. And Chinese students would typically have studied with a Chinese textbook, Chinese materials, Chinese professor in China. But when it comes to doing the Jessup mood, they need to compete on the international level in English. And so there was actually a manual created by one of the Chinese student societies about how to do Jessup mooting. And it didn't say anything about Chinese materials, didn't say anything about translations. Instead it said, get a UK international law textbook, cite cases from the US Supreme Court, the UK Supreme Court, Australia and Canada, and cite articles from the American Journal of International Law and the European Journal of International Law. And this is exactly the same idea that what, what counts as the international and to do it internationally is Western in general and Anglo-American in particular. It's a, it's a beautiful illustration about how you socialize people into what, what counts as international law, but also what counts as international law being quite limited in terms of its representation. But it's not just about patterns of the sources you use and difference and dominance in those. I also found some very clear substantive differences. So for example, I found different topics were focused on. Uh, you had, for example, the, all of the Russian international law um, textbooks had an entire chapter on the law of outer space. And I had never even thought that the law of outer space was a big issue. It had never been a big issue in my textbooks. But it was a big issue in the Russian textbooks. And when I read them, actually, they, some of them had some really good points about how the law has stayed at a standstill while technological advancements have really been made. I also found, for example, that the hot topics were very different. So the hottest topic in, in Russian scholarship seemed to be about whether or not the individual uh, could be a subject of international law, which I had thought was a bit of a debate in the West, but a debate from a while ago. And what I started to realize in the Russian debates was that that topic itself ended up being a bit of a proxy war between those who wanted to have a more Soviet approach that was more state-focused and those who wanted to have a more Western approach which was more individual-focused. And so some of these topics ended up being um, battlegrounds for how it is that we approach international law. But they also often ended up representing different pictures of who the good guys and who the bad guys are when it comes to international law. So for example, on unilateral humanitarian intervention. I was used to in my Western textbooks an idea that, for example, with Kosovo, it was illegal, the NATO use of force, but it was legitimate and there might be an emerging norm in favour of unilateral humanitarian intervention. 
That was not the narrative I found in the Russian textbooks, which spoke about NATO's war criminals and the illegal use of force, a very, very different narrative about whether or not it was legal or not and who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. Um, and then the Chinese textbooks, I basically found almost nothing on it. It was like Kosovo didn't exist, at least in their textbooks. But there were some veiled comments about um, interventionism and hegemonism. And you start to realize, for example, here that you end up with quite different narratives. So, for example, in the space area, you actually have the, the Russian textbooks focusing on it, but it's one where Russia and China are pushing ahead for legal developments and the West is saying, no, no, we're not ready. Whereas on unilateral humanitarian intervention that the Western books often focus on, it's where the West is pushing forward and China and Russia are saying, mm, no, not so sure. So you get different senses about who's being proactive and who's sort of halting the development of international law. But there were also differences between the Western states. And so one of the clear ones I found uh, was, for example, about the legality of the war in Iraq. So the, the US cases and materials often had very extensive, like 20 or 30 page materials where you could really go through in detail and work out you know, the Security Council resolution and the revival argument, and you would get the US materials and really sort of understand how the argument was made. And at the end of it, they didn't say, this is lawful, but you were left with the clear understanding that this was arguable and you could take either side. You go across to the French international law textbooks, uh, which were textbooks rather than casebooks, so that's a difference. But they would often have one or two pages on the Iraq war, clearly under the heading of the illegal intervention of the war in Iraq. And what you'd find there is that although the US and UK made an argument based on revival, in fact, there was no second Security Council resolution. It was flatly illegal. Let's move on. And so you get differences of uh, approach to international law, both between the West and the non-Western states in this study, but also within the West. So that leads me to my final point, which is a point about disruption. If we've got patterns of difference and we've got patterns of dominance, how might the world be changing in a way that we need to be more cognizant of these issues? Well, it turns out that when I had thought that we did not have comparative approaches to international law, that really was just a reflection of the fact that I wasn't as old as an international lawyer. And that that, that was definitely true in the sort of post-Cold War era. But if I went back to one era before, during the Cold War, we actually did have a conception of Russian approaches, or sorry, Soviet approaches to international law and Western approaches to international law. And that's because we had bipolar power. Once we have the Cold War finishing and we have unipolar power, then we have much more of a celebration of kind of universal international law and these comparative notions die away. And I guess what I want to say now is that we're moving into an era which I'm calling the competitive world order, where we're getting different um, constellations of states that are often not like-minded states, where we've got power that's more multipolar. And I think as we move into this geopolitical age, we're going to need to have a better understanding of the different approaches to international law of these different blocks of states. Now, we see many current examples of this playing out. Uh, let me just give you two. The first one is we see a very clear standoff happening, for example, between China and Russia on the one hand and the Western states, particularly led by the US on the other, on issues like cybersecurity. So we see, for example, a very different approach to whether the internet should be a global commons where you can all um, act, or whether we should have a balkanized approach to the internet where states are able to sort of regulate off and regulate within their perimeters. And interestingly, this kind of more balkanized approach, which is the approach that the, the Chinese and the Russians take, actually reflects very strongly on some of their ideas about the importance of state sovereignty in international law. And you actually find even phrases like um, cyber sovereignty and, and virtual sovereignty, which is much more of an idea that international law is about protecting 
the sovereignty of states um, and, and a very different emphasis on that in the, in the Western textbooks which often talk about the decline of sovereignty compared to other values. We also see it in the, in the nature of the debates about how we should have regulation there. Just like um, with the Russian ones that didn't necessarily want to have individuals recognised as subjects of international law, what you see is Russia and China want an interstate treaty. You want regulation between states. Whereas the Western uh, governments are like, well, let's have non-binding governance, let's have corporations at the table, let's have non-state actors. So we see differences of substance and approach and differences also about how you go about getting regulation. So that's one example currently. Another example currently would be the differences between some of the Chinese and Western uh, dialogues on the South China Sea. Now we know with the South China Sea in the case against China that um, China did not accept the jurisdiction of the tribunal and, and failed to appear before the tribunal. But what I ended up finding is not only did you have very different communities of Chinese international lawyers and Western international lawyers talking about this, but they often fed this through very different narratives which were often I think also influenced by the media in the different states. So the media in the US really encouraged people to focus on the fact that China had not appeared before the tribunal, China did not accept the uh, decision of the tribunal, and this was cast in terms of a, that China's a rise and would China be a responsible citizen or would it be a bully and aggressive towards its neighbours and, and not um, abide by international law. Whereas if you went into the, the Chinese materials, you saw a very, very different narrative. There was a much stronger focus not on the fact that they didn't turn up or that they didn't abide by the judgment, but the fact that they had a very strong jurisdictional objection to the tribunal, which they said was a very legitimate jurisdictional objection, that they'd never allowed this uh, tribunal to decide on issues of uh, sovereignty, and so the tribunal was acting illegitimately. You also saw it played through not an idea of China's aggressive rise and was China bullying its neighbours, but through the idea that there had been a century of humiliation for China in its dealings with the West. It had been the victim of Western aggression, and here was the West wanting to potentially encroach upon Chinese sovereign space again. And so just a very, very different narrative about kind of what the issues were and what sort of metric that you should put it in in terms of understanding who was being aggressive or who, who had actually been the victim in international law. You also saw, interestingly, an asymmetry here, which I want to contrast with what I said earlier about the Crimea case um, with Russia. So with the Crimea case, you had the Western scholars and you had the Russian scholars and almost no dialogue between them. Whereas interestingly, in the Chinese case, you saw something quite different. You still had quite different dialogues going on in the West and in China. But unlike with the Russians, the Chinese, typically the elite international lawyers, did their first law degree in China, but then were incentivized to do their second and third law degrees outside China, usually in the West. They typically spoke English. They were incentivized to publish in English and in foreign publications. And so what we actually found, and, and we also found increasingly English language publications in China uh, dealing with these issues, like the Chinese Journal of International Law. And that actually meant that many of the Chinese international lawyers, who often took a position that was more sympathetic to the Chinese state, uh, their view was able to be communicated out to the Western world, which was different to what we saw with um, Crimea and Russia. But also, interestingly, there was an asymmetry because it wasn't often done the same in the reverse. And that was because often the Western scholars did not speak Chinese, they had not um, edu been educated in China, they did not publish in Chinese journals. And even if they'd wanted to, there would have probably been censorship restrictions that would have meant that information would not have got through to the Chinese audience. So we see a connection between these communities, but in an asymmetrical way. So what I've really talked about today with the topic of is international law international 
is this idea that instead of it being universal, instead of us being in a single college, we need to be a bit more honest about the fact that we're a divisible college, that we've got different communities of international lawyers that are educated and socialised in different ways and create different communities, and sometimes also different communities with their own truths. That despite the fact that there are differences, we've clearly had a pattern where some approaches have been dominant in defining the international, and that has very much been Western approaches in general and Anglo-American approaches in particular. But finally, we're getting to a point with disruption and with changes in geopolitics where I think that we're entering into a new competitive world order where we're seeing the relative decline of the West in general and I think with um, recent events also particularly of the Anglo-American world relative to where they have been previously. But we're seeing the relative rise of a lot of non-Western states including uh, China, India, Brazil. And I think in that situation we're going to have a more competitive relationship about the different approaches to international law and which one is going to be dominant or which ones are going to be held to be in tension with each other. So what do I think we need to do? Well I think the, the, the real thing I walked away from this study thinking was that it was really important to try and understand international law through the eyes of others. Instead of just being in your one siloed community uh, with people who are very similar to you, we needed to diversify our perspectives, we needed to diversify our sources and diversify our networks so that we become better at communicating with international lawyers from a variety of different backgrounds and that we use this to have a better and more three-dimensional understanding of both international law in general but also of our own approaches. You don't need to agree with everything that international lawyers from other states say, you don't need to agree with everything that international lawyers from your own state says. But it's really important to actually understand the different narratives and the different approaches of international lawyers from other states if we're going to try and have a global field and have some sort of real dialogue across different approaches. And I think we also need to use this to be self-critical, to be able to challenge ourselves. One of the things I found often in looking at the different sources is sometimes they were much more adept at understanding the approaches of others than they were necessarily of themselves. And so I think that sometimes it's important to read these different sources to be able to get an external perspective on your own approaches. Understand how some of the arguments that you take for granted might look very different to some uh, one coming from a different country that has a different history of colonialism, for example. They having been oppressed by colonialism rather than having been imperial masters under colonialism. You might have a very different understanding about how international law is if you come from a, a native-speaking native state that is not a native-English-speaking state. You may find that the international is more dis disconnected from your experience. I found often Francophone people found that international law, uh, international lawization was, they said, common lawization, which was something that I had not seen the equivalent of um, Western common law speakers being worried that international lawization might be civil lawization. So we start to see that your perspective on international law might be different depending on where you come from. So it's important to look at international law through other eyes. With that, I think I'll come to a close. But I wanted to say thank you for your attention on this and also thank you to the UN Audiovisual Library. It is actually through initiatives exactly like this that we can start to have these dialogues and dialogues that can actually be downloaded and understood in many countries throughout the world to start to have the real debates about what international law is and what sort of communities we should be building, what sort of approaches we should be understanding. And technology is one of the things that's actually going to be able to enable us to better see international law through other eyes and to better able to be better able to diversify our perspectives, diversify our sources and diversify our networks. Thank you.